everybody, welcome. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing The Shining from 1980. We do recommend you watch the movie ahead of time. It makes the conversation more interesting to listen to. So, John, what is The Shining about? You know, Mike, for the first time, I have actually located a trailer with audio that I think summarizes this movie really, really nicely and uh, and we can use in our podcast. So I'm just going to sub that in here. Take a listen. Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. No good ones. Meet Danny. He's a kid looking for a dad. There's hardly anybody to play with around here. Nah. What's up, Doc? Jack just can't finish his book. I don't want to sound melodramatic, but there's no way to make it economically feasible. Here's to five miserable months. But now, sometimes, what we need the most is just around the corner. I'm your new foster father. I'd do anything. Climbing up on Salisbury Hill. I love it. I could see the city light. I think uh, the real lesson of that trailer is that Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel just makes anything sound happy and upbeat. You know, yeah. you can you can mix that behind anything. It's also like, oh, this is it also really feeds into I think something I I knew deep down but I've never put my finger on, which is that every rom com is like one step away from being a horror flick. Like it's just, that's it's so close, that's just accurate, <laughs> so close together. That line is razor thin. Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. I didn't Here's mean- Johnny! Oh, yes! Welcome once again to This Film Could Be Your Life, the movie podcast where two friends take the films that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Here's Johnny again. Okay, you double down. <laughs> Why'd you double down? It doesn't make sense name, for you. It's John. not your name. It's your name. Uh, You've always so been you're... doing this podcast, John. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Is that going to be our version of the Overlook yes. Hotel? Well, yes. one day we'll just wake up and we'll just be always recording this just podcast. Begging out another departed pod. <laughs> Jeez. Just, just like, I don't know why what I picked a horrible, that movie. <laughs> I know. What a horrible future you've, you've painted for us. Uh, I'm, as, if it's not clear, we are talking about the horror movie from 1980, uh, The Shining, based on the book by Stan, or excuse me, based on the book by Stephen King. It is directed by Stanley Kubrick. The screenplay was by Kubrick and Diane Johnson. It stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and Danny Lloyd. The cinematography is by John Alcott. It was edited by Ray Lovejoy. The music was by Wendy Carlos, which we'll yes. talk about that later. MVP. And Rachel Elkin. MVP. 
like I said, the movie's based on the Stephen King novel. The central character of Jack Torrance is an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic who accepts a position as the off-season caretaker of the isolated historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies with his wife, Wendy, and his young son, Danny. Danny is gifted with psychic abilities named Shining. After a winter storm leaves them snowbound, Jack's sanity deteriorates due to the influence of the supernatural forces that inhabit that hotel. Uh, We start the episode by just talking about our history with this movie. This one, I'm going to guess that you might be in a similar boat, Mike, because we were both born early 90s. So, so, you know, decade or so after this movie came out, by that point, it was already a real pop culture fixture. So my, you know, for me, I think I encountered this movie through all of the references to the movie before I ever, ever actually saw it. And of course, for me, there's that added element where it's a horror movie. So I was sort of averse to watching it for a long time as a little kid, you know. Uh, I specifically want to shout out when I watched the movie Twister from 1997, which, man, Mike, we have to do Twister at some point. Really? It's a great movie. Have to? Yes. What do you mean, really? (laughs) It's essential. Philip Seymour Hoffman? Hey, okay. Jesus. Other things? I didn't realize you were so into Twister. I'm sorry. (laughs) How dare you? Okay. Bill Paxton? This is someone else. This is a weird response. I'm I'm alarmed. In in Twister, there's a there's a (laughs) shot where uh, they're in outdoor movie theater at night, and a Twister comes, and they all have to go to like a basement or something. Who cares? But the the screen was showing The Shining, uh, and it showed the the famous door hacking scene. It also showed the two girls in the hallway. In hindsight, it was wildly out of order, which like, cause it was just obviously showing the most popular scenes kind yeah, of in the background yeah, while yeah. things were happening. But it always tripped me up when I watched this movie later. Uh, but yeah, that stuck in my head as like, oh my God, that movie looks so scary, so intense. I'll never, ever watch that movie. Uh, and then, yeah, finally got around to it. Obviously Kubrick, you know, was a big force. And, and um, I think I... From the very beginning, it was funny because it wasn't like a horror movie the way I had been brought up to think of horror movies. Mm. It wasn't like this. It, it didn't center on gore. There's very little gore in the movie, even though there is some. Um, An elevator full it didn't, effect. The ele- yeah, the elevator. I actually, for me, the, the axe, yeah, Scam and yeah, Crothers, yeah. that whole scene is pretty it. tough. It's not good. Uh, also, the, the weird old timey guy with his head split open talking to wendy near the end yeah also an old lady uh, with her skin falling off but whatever yeah so, so a few a few moments but outside of that it's very quiet and moody and slow sure. and contemplative and not and there's very few jump scares and it's just a different kind of horror movie which we're going to get into but i definitely liked it and have returned to it a lot i think there's certain things that make it a very watchable movie but uh, but yeah, I, I really did get to know the references before seeing the movie. Mike, is that is that similar to your experience, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's 100%. I don't know anyone, obviously, we're mostly the same age, me and my friends, but I don't know anyone who that's not the experience. I mean, here's Johnny in particular, um, which even is a reference to a show that I've never seen. So like, there's even like, even what it's referencing, I am not familiar with. So I'm familiar with like, the pop culture footprint of The Shining long before I had ever seen it. I don't think I saw it until late high school. 
it wasn't even the first Kubrick movie I saw. My dad was a big history guy, so I had seen um, Doctor Strange. Barry Lyndon, obviously. Yeah, Barry Lyndon. No, no Doctor Strange Love long before this. Um, mm. I wasn't a big King fan. In fact, I have like a distinct memory of getting a a high fantasy book written by Stephen King when I was like probably 10 or 11 and having to take it to my parents because I had like a very explicit like sex scene in it. So, oh. like, which is just like, if you read Stephen King, it's pretty odd brand. He's yeah. got some hangups to say the least. Um, so all to say, like I had no impression of this movie in terms of like actually engaging with it as an artifact. It was just like uh, a zeitgeist of its own. Like that's what it was to mm-hmm. me until I was probably like 20 or 18 or something like that. And then even then, I I could never tell you what my impression of this movie is, because I think even by the time I had seen it, I had also heard that it was a masterpiece, like from a lot of people. So I'd already become pretty entrenched in studying cinema. So I kind of went in knowing that this is a movie I like have to come away respecting. Um, And I did. But, you know, maybe I did not Maybe I was just brainwashed. I don't know. Um, yeah, but maybe yeah. it's not a good movie, and we've all just been told that Kubrick's <laughs> yeah, a genius pill. and makes no mistakes, and we can't pill. see it. So I, it's it's a, probably one of the most interesting movies that we've done in terms of my relationship to it. Um, I do have a random question: What is your favorite Kubrick movie? Great question. It's really, really hard not to say two thousand one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, and it, it's actually funny because you 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 bring up something that I was going to bring up later, but we could even do a little bit now. I think this movie has a unique distinction of, in my opinion, being the most watchable Kubrick movie. Sure. Not, And I would actually say that's also, though, partially just because it's so much later than some, like that could have been Dr. Strangelove, but so much of Dr. Strangelove does feel like really old, yeah, like really slow paced yeah, and yeah. really, you know? And so there's other movies that may have made that may have a better case except for the recency thing. This movie feels, for the most part, very modern. There's a couple things I'm going to shout out that don't, but whatever. Um, For the most part, very modern. And for some reason we'll get into, it's so watchable that I I think I've seen this one more than any other one. Yep. Um, 2001, though, every time I watch it, uh, I just walk away and I'm like, oh, my God. You know, and I don't watch it that often. I'll say that. But what I do, I'm just like, Oh my goodness, that was amazing. So, what about yep. you? Uh, I think it's probably nostalgically Doctor Strangelove, just because I got introduced there yeah. really early, and then uh, it's a great movie. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it's a it's like a movie of those movies where it's like There Will Be Blood, where I've I've actually like written papers on it, you know, in my mm-hmm. academic pursuit. That's how attached I am to it, and kind of any opportunity I had to study it more, I've taken. Um, but I think this is right there. I I am a hundred percent with you. I. I actually think Kubrick, despite his genius, is like one of the least rewatchable directors. That might be a cold <laughs> take, but like, um, and I'm not really not going to rewatch Full Metal Jacket. You know, I've seen it twice. I love that movie. It's a war movie. It's it's a great little flick, but like, it's just so ugly and mean and and out there. Um, I actually feel that way a little bit about 2001: Space Odyssey. That's a little controversial. Um, Yikes! No, but kidding. it's just not a very like you said. I, I I what I will say about 2001 is like I saw it on a, on my TV at home, and then I got an opportunity to see it in like a big screen, and that with me was no actually it wasn't. You're thinking of someone else, but um, but <laughs> <laughs> whoa, <laughs> that's not that's not even a lie. I have not seen that movie with you, but um, 
but in yeah. IMAX with me and Max? It wasn't in IMAX. Nope, definitely. It was at UF, but that's a whole other thing. Man, wow. But like, so All right, he, never mind. Yeah, you're a bad friend. But um, <laughs> we've always been watching 2001, John. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that, so that's that's what I will say is like, there is something about his films rewatchability-wise or going to see it in different contexts or on a different screen um, is almost always worthwhile. But if I'm just sitting down on like a Monday on my TV, like there's just like 0% chance I'm going to pick a Kubrick film um, to enjoy my day Except- off. You, you, I mean, besides, you watch Eyes Sorry. Wide Shut every night before going to sleep, right? That's yeah. just sort of well, a, no, I, why would a I, ritual. I, I live it. Why would I watch it? That's, yeah. That's my life, John. <laughs> um, I, will, I will say, except for The Shining. So, the come full circle. Yeah. I have rewatched this movie probably six or seven times. So, there it is. It's Well, and if you're okay, Mike, we can go right into why the movie works. Because yeah. there's, there's, I very specifically, I was actually fascinated by this question. It's funny that you brought it up. I'm happy you did. Because, oh, so so we're, briefly, we divide the podcast into a few different sections. We're just going to start with why the movie works. We'll talk about maybe some things that hold it back, some stray thoughts, some dialogue later on the podcast. But we'll start with the good things. Um, I was also fascinated by that question, Mike, of what makes this movie so much more watchable than, yeah. than other Kubrick movies. I actually centered on one. I think there's several things, but I centered on one element that really stands out in Kubrick's filmography. And that element is a man named Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I it, I don't know if I expected before the rewatch um, that he was going to stand out so much in my notes for this movie. But the more I thought about it, if you think about all of the performances across Kubrick movies, and he's an amazing director and he gets amazing performances, but they're almost always very cold, right? Yeah. Like in in hyper-emotional situations, expressivity is just not something that he seems to usually care about much. I think Peter Sellers is the only like pushback to that mm-hmm. maybe, but That's good. that yeah. movie has its own thing. That's also a comedy, so it's not quite yeah. the same thing. Like this movie though, I think if you looked at the movie, if you took Jack Nicholson out, it is very like that Kubrick movie, right? Where everyone, even Danny, even Wendy, whatever like has a certain coldness. I, I also want to say Shelley Duvall has a good performance in this movie. We'll get to that later, but you know, they're all still very Kubrick esque performances, but then smack dab in the middle is Jack Nicholson. In my opinion, giving what might be his best performance yeah. uh, and conveying so much like it, it on paper, this is just like psychopathic, writer dad who loses it and tries to call his family yeah there's not necessarily a lot there but he brings so much into this character through his expressiveness his his you know obviously he's probably the most famous expressions in hollywood but still the way that he uses his face to convey horror or or you know all these intangible emotions it's hard to even describe them you know, in terror and, and fear and, and intensity and, and all of these different things, the way that he gives those speeches, I think my favorite scene in the movie, well, I have a lot of favorite scene in this movie, but when he's talking to Wendy uh, and he says, Don't hurt me. I'm not going to hurt you. Stay away from me. Wendy. Stay away. Darling, light of my life. I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains in. I'm gonna bash them right the fuck in. 
Oh, it's so good. Anyway. That's so good. And yeah. it's it's just so evocative and it it like imbues the movie with so much like life for lack yes. of a better word, right? Yes. Like it, it yes. explodes off the screen. Um so I don't know. I want to talk about the other actors too, but like, you know, to me that speaks to both of those questions. Why does this movie work? Why is this movie watchable? I almost want to say that the X factor for both of those is Jack Nicholson without him. It's still a good movie, but is it this level of, I, I can just put it on on a Monday and have a good time. I don't know. You know? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I mean, this is like the, one of my favorite, this is like, it, it's so funny that we the only Jack Nicholson performances we've judged is this is the part in. So it's like the worst, <laughs> the worst, the abject worst. Lowest of lows. And yeah. Like the best. Um, but this is definitely my favorite. And I and I do think you're right. He imbues it with life, but he also imbues it with the, gosh, I'm trying to think of how to say this to make sense. He he embodies within this performance the descent of the movie. Like, and what I mean by mm. that is the descent of this movie. What's amazing about The Shining is that everything evil in it is there when they arrive, and it just becomes like revealed as it goes on, yeah. which is obviously like the primary thematic resonance of the film of this like Snowden premise is that. These people are already, you know, who they are going to become as the film descends into hell, but it's going to be dragged out of them by their circumstance, right? And by their isolation and by all these things and alcoholism and yada, yada, yada. Um, And he, in this character, just like embodies that. Like, you know, he's a dick. He's a sleazy, mean-spirited, horrible person the moment you first see him. You pick it up Mm. immediately. Like, in his smallest reactions and interactions, with both like the hotel owner, his wife, his kid, the first time he goes off on Wendy for interrupting his writing, you're just like, oh, this dude's like evil. He's abusive. He's not a good person. Whatever else you want to say. And then you just kind of watch that devolve into a more exaggerated, exaggerated form until, like you said, you have that wonderful scene that we just cut into the podcast where he actually turns straight villain or full-blown villain um, and gives into the actual insanity of that his character's kind of like devolved into. But all to say like i don't know if there's anything cooler i can say about performance other than like that end madness is found trickling out of him from the very start right and it just is a matter of like how much is his will to hold that in and you can get a supernatural or not whatever you want to say how much of that starts to break down as it kind of comes out um i also want to shout out one particular like acting moment like that is like literally Uh 10 out of 10 uh, broadly speaking, Jack Nicholson probably has the best I'm insane face ever. But, but <laughs> it's those eyebrows. I don't pa- know what's going yeah. on with those eyebrows. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. But in particular, the face he makes when he takes his first drink and he just goes empty, yeah. I guess you would say. It's just like glass eye kind of. His soul yeah. leaves him. Unbelievable. Like, I, I don't even know how you do that on command. Yeah. I don't know how you perform that. It is awesome. Um, yeah. So I'm going to shout it out. I will say we're being a little hard on the guy because who hasn't moved their wife and kid into an abandoned Snowden murder hotel for an entire winter? Uh, it's a great point. You, you know, know, let's not, we can't, we can't pursue that too much. because It may come up in some stray thoughts and questions later, but uh, I also, you know, without wishing to harp on him too much, I want to call out one other thing with his performance, which is the, it's funny because, I think there's so much dialogue about maybe this could also just be how young we are. But to me, like 
Jack Nicholson's acting ability was always just handed to me as like a complete whole fact. Yeah. As in like people were just like, he's an amazing actor, but they, everyone took it for granted so much that I never heard people talk about it. So like, for example, I never hear people talk about the physicality of his acting. Yeah. I, I, the, the moment I want to call out, we can't really cut in because it's just a physical thing. But when he's talking to Wendy, when the scene you talk about when he's getting mad at her for interrupting him, and when he talks about when I'm typing on the typewriter and he makes this exaggerated one finger thing that's just conveying so much hatred, right? And so much venom as he's just like, when I'm doing this, don't come in. And there's so much, it's such a simple motion. Like this, you know, the script probably just says like he types exaggeratedly or something, but he gives it so much character and so much like story meaning. Um and there's a lot of physicality in this movie. Some of it's going to come up later in Stray Thoughts and stuff, so I don't want to get yeah. too much into that. Yeah. But, but my God, this performance really, to me, like seals the entire movie up as just like, yeah. that's it. This is, this, is, this is why I want to watch this movie. Having said that, I do want to shout out the other performances because I think they are all good. I also will reiterate, they are all good. And I, I, I'm kind of hinting at it, so I'm just going to say it now. Just to like, cut through 40 years of, of BS. Shelly Duvall is really good in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. like, you know, yeah, no. I just want to leave it at that. Cause I think it's just stupid that people gave her a hard time when the character is written to be helpless. It's well, like, and, cool. That's and, the character. I, and, what do you want? Yeah. And she was abused and you're, you know, and she was abused on set. Yeah. yeah so it's like, I, I actually even had a joke in my stray thoughts about her swinging baseball bats and how bad it looks form wise. And then you read that it's because that was like the 88th take that Stanley Kubrick made her swing that bat 40 times. And she's just like literally exhausted at the time that they actually use the shot. And you're like, Oh, that's not funny. That's just like abuse. And, uh, it's just cruel. People yeah. just need to like get off this because she's, she's exactly what she needs to be in this film. And I, every criticism I read is stupid. It's misogynistic. Well, idiocy. Yeah, I agree. And she famously won a Razzie award, which don't get me sorry on the Razzie awards. Yeah. It's just stupid teenage edgy bolt BS, but she famously won a Razzie credit to them. They did actually rescind it uh, years later when it became so much more clear how much abuse, emotional uh, abuse, and to a certain extent, physical abuse yeah. she suffered on set. So yeah, tough times, but like, I, I still want to maintain the performance is also just good. Like yeah. I, I also kind of just don't get it. I'm like, yeah, she works. It totally works for the tone of the movie. I'm not saying it's like a charismatic character, but it's not supposed to be. So no, I don't, you know, yeah. I'm just, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense to me. I, uh, I don't, so, I don't understand. Again, I'm just with you. So I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but like she carries this kind of like innate sense of na naivety and meekness that allows for the, the horror turn and her terror to feel so earned. Right. Yeah. And she's doing such great physical acting and in, in her body language in particular as like an abused person who's just trying to put like a good face on a toxic relationship and take care of her son. Like all of that comes across so strongly without her having to do much of anything. Like even yeah. the way that she communicates the story about when Jack hurts Danny, like the way that she tells that story to try to let him off the hook. If you've ever been around like domestic abuse survivors, like that's what it this is what it looks like. This is like what yeah. this actually is. She embodies a character who is in this situation and, and it carries a, a, I don't know, such a good balance to what Jack Nicholson is doing in this film. And it's just also, I think unreal in its own right at how 
effective it is in terms of that weirdness, that awkwardness, that strangeness, that insecurity, all of which is going to allow her to do such a good job at encapsulating the sheer horror and the trappedness that comes in the final act. So I don't know. I actually had just like a lot of a rant going on for this like section. No, I'm so there for you. This kind of spilled yeah. out of me. Uh, but the criticism <laughs> dri drives me absolutely insane. I don't get it at all. I think we're I think we're very aligned on that. I actually want to go back to that scene you were talking about because I, I I specifically wrote down how much I liked that scene. So this is almost I think it's like the second or third scene in the movie when she's talking to the doctor. I actually find that scene incredibly disquieting and creepy. I think yeah, it's supposed to be it's supposed. To it's be. also the subject matter and like I just think that that actually demonstrates the movie's approach to horror really well yeah. because the first two thirds of the movie is basically all that tone, right? Yep. Like very quiet, very low key. But if you're paying attention, if your brain is on, you should be shuddering, right? Like yeah. the way that she says, actually, I think the thing I want to call out is the way that she says at the very beginning. Just one of those things, you know, purely an accident. My husband had uh, been drinking, and he came home about three hours late. So the way that she has that line, if you know about domestic abuse, that, that kind of already sets off those alarm bells, right? Where you're thinking, oh, this is not good. Like, yeah. no one starts an uh, yeah. explanation that way if it's truly an innocent thing. Um, which then kind of pays off with the whole Jack shouting, you've had your whole life to get out of here, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lots of themes in this movie, and domestic abuse is certainly one of them, but not the main one, I don't think. We'll get to that yeah, maybe later. So. But, um, really quick, other actors, great job. Danny Lloyd, maybe the best child performance ever. What What do you think? Home Alone 2? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't come up with my list of child performances. Uh, that wasn't up there for you. He's hella creepy. Um, and like, here, I'll just read you exactly what I wrote, John. Yeah, um, yeah, hit me. This is a direct quote from my notes. Like, bruh, if my kids started talking with their finger, saying some <laughs> dude Tony lives in his mouth and uses that voice, I would straight up return him to the hospital. No thanks. So You'd be like, something was wrong with this one. <laughs> so Give me another one. That's that's it. So obviously it was effective. He, he got under my skin, apparently, because I was like, take him back. Take him back. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some good wide eyes, wide scary eyes. I don't know. Yeah. Good kid. Scatman Crothers, great job. I will say that character is tough for me just because I feel bad. Yeah. I'm just sad about that character. He seems cool. He seems dies. chill. That's well, like it, it. Yeah. And I always forget because it's like it's classic Kubrick strangeness that his death is so weird. Like they drag out his role for so long. Yeah. His flight out to Colorado. You're like on the plane with them. And then it leads to the showdown, and you're like, ah, it's going to confront them and use this shining. And it's like, nope, dead. He's dead. Like, axe so, to chest, dead. Like, I, do, I do think it's a, it's a really funny situation because it, it does reveal there's little quirky things like that that have one of two explanations. The first explanation is it makes sense from the perspective of making a horror movie that yeah. it's meant to surprise oh, yeah. you that, that you are get you are investing because we spend so long with him and his trip to the overlook that when he gets there, like you said, you're like, what's going to happen. And then he just dies. And you're like, Oh, I guess nothing. But the other explanation is there must be some hidden meaning beneath this. 
which then sets people off. Uh, which oh no, I know, I think in a weird way it just makes the most sense. Like if he showed up yeah. not expecting this to happen, why would he be ready for the bad man with the axe like coming at him? Of course he's gonna die immediately. He's yeah, he's completely caught off guard. Like I don't know, it makes perfect sense to me. It's just in terms of our cinematic poison TV brains, like we expect something more dramatic, and yeah. yet reality a, a is payoff. far far more chilling. Right, so. Um, Maybe yeah, the only great. real jump scare of the movie yeah. in dying. Yep. I, th- I think so. Yeah. It's one of them. One of them um, yeah. yeah. Great work from all those people. Why don't you go, Mike? What do you have for why this movie works? Well, real quick, want to shout out Philip Stone as Grady and Joe Turkle as Lloyd the bartender. They are both oh, yeah, super yeah. freaky, creepy. So they have very small parts, so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but they have some delight delivery moments that are uh, absolutely unnerving. The corrected her stuff. Oh my gosh, I was going to say that. Perhaps they need a good talking to. If you don't mind my saying so. Perhaps a bit more. My girls, sir, they didn't care for the overlook at first. One of them actually stole a pack of matches and tried to burn it down. But I corrected them, sir. And when my wife tried to prevent me from doing my duty, I corrected her. No one has ever said corrected with that kind of like little, like it's almost like he's rolling his R's slightly. It's so evocative. I I don't know how to describe it. It's amazing. And when my wife tried to prevent me from doing my duty, I corrected her. It's so unbelievable. It's so creepy. It's chilling. Chilling. Yeah. So shout out, shout outs there. Um, In terms of a different topic. I mean, I think I'm going to kind of stick with the cast a little bit, or at the very least the Mm -hmm. characters. And that is, I want to shout out the Overlook Hotel because I think this setting of this movie is another one of the things that is the strongest. Um, I would say it's between this and the score that are the two biggest ones on my list. And I'm going to leave the score to you, my dude. So I'm going to instead focus on the setting. I think this is like an epic, near perfect ghost story premise. I don't even really yeah. think it gets much better than this. I mean, abandoned hotel, Indian burial ground, history of murder, total isolation, snowed in. Uh, the concept of The Shining is going to come up a little bit later, but still it's fine um but the setting of this hotel and the way that you know obviously some of this is going to bleed into other categories we'll talk about with kubrick's direction but you know the patterns of like hotel carpet all the the claustrophobia of it like it is just an unbelievable set piece in order to place some sort of a story like this a haunting a is this really happening or is this you know all going on in their head is there something mystical or is this a matter of insanity like all of these things play out perfectly within this context so Mm. i i really just want to shout it out it's very you know kind of cliche to be like the building is a character in the film but obviously this might be the most perfect time to use that cliche because it's a hundred i totally agree and uh kubrick does some some unbelievable work with it so yeah that's i think this is one of the hallmark shout outs of the entire film i totally agree i think the set does from a set design perspective it's just unreal like the 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 visual landscape of the internal hotel which mostly is on is on sound stages but you know even something like the carpet which i think is just like in 
indelibly etched in everyone's brain who saw this movie with those strange patterns that and and the way that the characters even seem to be interacting with those patterns without maybe necessarily realizing it yeah um it's just it's incredible you know i actually forgot i was gonna say this up in my in my history with this movie i've been to the physical hotel that inspired this hotel so or or i should say inspired I think maybe the book. Oh, I should have looked this up ahead did, of time. Did you work it's in there Colorado as a, as a as a landkeeper? Did you work? There? I've always been working there, Mike. I'm working <laughs> oh, there now. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it was what? And so the part uh, I should have looked this up because it's in Colorado, and um, but the one I went to is actually like in a town. It's not very isolated, and I I want to say it was like more so the inspiration for the book, like like. King like stayed there and was like, "Hey, what if I wrote a creepy story about a Colorado hotel?" Um, so I, I don't totally remember how that works, but somehow it's connected with The Shining, the movie or the book. Uh, yeah, good times. We just drove by it, but uh, it was weird though. In the movie, they're talking about Colorado so much, and eventually I realized, like, oh, my sister oh, lives there. I've hey, been, I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That's it was great. very beautiful. Yeah, uh, but yeah incredible incredible set incredible setting um we've kind of been talking about this in in a few different contexts so just to say that the the pacing of the movie broadly speaking is really oh, good god it's, such a it's funny brain. because yeah. it's also like very different than a lot of movies I, th- I think if you were to show this to someone in 2023 who's like never seen it before right and and, and who isn't that familiar with the pacing of old movies i think that they would initially think that it was paced the way it is just because it's old. Yeah. And I would hope that by the end they would think, oh, no, 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 no. It was just doing that on purpose to set up the last act of the movie. Because I actually kind of do that every time I rewatch it anyways. Like I turn it on and my first instinct is always like, oh, this movie's older than I thought because it starts out very deliberate, very slow, very contemplative. These little scenes that don't seem to be relevant to the plot, right? Like, oh, we have to see him showing her the kitchen, but like some part of that's important to the story, but there's also an extra five minutes where they're kind of just walking around talking. All of it, I think, is important and does play that role that we've been talking about of sort of building up. The whole movie is a very slow build. You really earn the last part of the movie. Um, Plus, like, like we've been saying, those early scenes are very creepy. There's very much things under the surface it's that kind of movie um so yeah i don't know i, I think it, it just really really hits that that slow burn you already said that but that slow burn kind of um pacing uh, approach to, to its its story kind of speed yeah no i'm with you I, I actually i'd be super curious to see how someone uh like you said as a first time viewer today responds to it because part of me wants to be negative and be like yeah they're gonna be like this is the slowest movie ever (laughs) and it's old and stupid but part of (laughs) me does kind of hope that like there is a level of obviousness to what he's doing that may because i I guess i'm always surprised by how quick it feels like it's slow but it doesn't feel slow and i always expect it to feel slow um, some of that is like he just does a very good job with like some specific cuts. You know, we already talked about the scene where Shelly's talking to 
um, the doctor, but you know, Wendy's last line there is, and he hasn't had alcohol in five months. And then it just hard cuts to that hard closing cuts, day. Yeah. And the soundtrack kicks in with just that unnerving kind of, you know, tenacity that it has. And I always remember that as like those kind of jarring movies moments make that early build up feel quicker to me than it actually is. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. there are these like moments that just like snap me out of my like little doldrum. Um, but I would say, or go ahead. No. So I, I was just gonna say, but at the same time, I love the slow burn quality of the film. Cause it does much like Nicholson's comp- uh, performance really encapsulates that descent into madness. That's so central and effective in the film. So mm-hmm. I just be curious at other, what other, a new person to this film would, would get from that immediately. Yeah. Uh, don't have an answer for you. I would actually, and, and just one final thought there, cause I like the way you worded that. I would say it's like the beginning of the movie is slow, but doesn't feel settled. Yeah. You're unsettled, but yeah, it's still, but it's not fast. That's really um, good. Yeah. It's and it, it just keeps you kind of on that knife's edge. So it's so, it's such a creepy movie, right? It it's, is. it's yeah. almost more creepy than is horrifying. I, al- I, I always, good. I always forget how unnerving the first scene where Lloyd, the ghost bartender shows up, like how yeah. jar- jarring that is. Cause like he comes in and the lights are on. So you already immediately like, well, this is weird. Why is like the grand hall all lit up? And then, you know, he, he sits down at the bar and you're like, oh, he's just like being creepy. And then someone actually like shows up and starts talking to Jack and you're like, what, what's going on? Excuse me? Like, what is this? <laughs> like, You know yeah. what I mean? It, what? Um, yeah. and, it, and it obviously never sits there and like explains anything. It just keeps rolling. But it's such a it's such a, a deeply jarring moment in the film. <laughs> um, and then it's obviously all out of control from there. But. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I can if I can get on the old person soapbox for a second too. I also appreciate that difference from more modern movies. And obviously yeah, this isn't yeah. all contemporary movies because there's people doing amazing work in all genres and horror genre or whatever, but by and large like an average movie these days I think would be invested in like really drawing your attention to the weirdness of that, right? Yeah. Of, of like, oh, suddenly there's a bartender and like, oh, let's let's like really like do all this camera work and all these, you know, some sort of musical cue or something just to be like, Oh, this is so creepy. I think part of why it's so creepy in this movie is because it, from the filmmaking perspective, there's, it's almost not calling attention to itself. Right. It feels so natural in the context of the film that you almost, your brain has to do that work of like, wait, what the hell is going on? Who is that? What is this? This is what's going to lead. We'll have this conversation about conspiracy theories later. I'm sure. But this is what leads to the theories, too, is like another thing. Every modern horror film would have an explanation of why this place is haunted explicitly. In fact, like yeah. the, the arc of the movie would be them unhaunting the house in a lot of ways. Right. And I do think like some now that modern horror is gaining a lot of um, really high end directing and, and it's just becoming one of those genres that's becoming a, a pocket of creativity again. I think you're getting more movies like The Shining where it's just like, yeah, we're not going to explain it or we're not going to resolve it. And yeah. there is something deeply unnerving about that. And, and also, I love it. I absolutely yeah. love that they hint at an Indian burial ground. They hint at this. They hint at that. But there isn't ever a point where, like, and that's why ghosts are here. And this is how you can, like, de-infest it of its ghost population. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. Which I... Uninterested <laughs> in that entirely. We didn't talk about the book very much. You haven't read the book, right? No, I, I truly cannot stand Stephen King, John. <laughs> right. I, I pretty much can't either. I do think he's an exceptionally good writer. It's yeah. just that most of his stuff isn't really for me. Um, 
I'm given to believe, and I really should have looked this up before saying it with so much confidence. I'm fairly confident that the book does actually explain in much more detail exactly what is happening. And that that was one of the many criticisms that uh, King had of the movie. In which case, I would probably tend to disagree with King because I would say I agree with you. I think that it's one of those cases where the more open you leave the movie the stronger it works, right? Yeah. Like if they had that 100%. scene where Scatman Crothers is just like, here's exactly what's going on. You're like, oh, okay, well, cool. It's Me. ghosts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> love it. Ghosts. <laughs> Good times. Um, and instead you get to read in all of these things to the movie, um, which I actually kind of had as a separate point. It might be the same, so I'll just maybe say it real quick. But yeah. I, I, I do think it's interesting how the movie is created in such a way. It, it's... What I wrote down is that it's laden with uh, vague enough imagery that it inspires symbolic readings, right? Yes. That, and I actually put this on, I often put things between the good and bad columns because I'm thinking like, it's kind of both. We'll get to maybe the not so good side of that later, but from the good side of things, I think it does make it rewarding, but also it makes it sorry rewarding to watch but also rewarding to discuss because it is partially it's it's almost too easy to just read things into the movie yeah. but i also think there are a lot of really cool things to read into the movie right like you can talk about the movie as domestic abuse you can talk about the movie which we'll probably get into this later but you can talk about it as colonialism as a colonialist mm. reading of or rather anti-colonialist reading you can talk about it in the context of even like artistry and writing and you know there's just a lot of different perspectives to bring to the movie did the moon landings actually happen who's there's to a say, lot of things John? to talk about who's to say uh people go crazy with those readings and you know there's a reason why though is that yeah. it almost is begging you to to read into it to go too far to to examine all these little details that don't quite add up all these little inconsistencies and little vagaries and whatever it's just really asking you to to you know invest yourself into it and, and pull out of it something that that means something to you i think that's great yeah i mean i think i was i mean i guess we can just get into some of this now i'm gonna get into yeah. the good ones how about that um but so this which is one do of, you want to summarize broadly what we're talking about in terms yeah, of like the, so, the readings people make of this movie? In, in a lot of a lot of ways, this movie is like, you know, I think I heard it on a different podcast, but this movie might be like the first mystery box thing piece of content in which it's just like so open ended. And thus it's so and it's obviously written with clues and basically the author is not very interested in telling you which of these clues are going to get answered or if which of them are real but it wants you to be guessing at them like it, that's kind of the whole point of like the modern mystery box era with like lost yellow jackets these kind of things right is there is a mystery at the center of this puzzle and whether it answers it or not it wants you to be pulling at the threads trying to figure it out does that make sense, right? Am I making yeah. sense so far? Yeah, yeah, and that's, absolutely. That's, I think there's something very interesting to say that this is like one of the first examples of that. Because of that, as the first of its kind, I think this movie got wrapped up into a uh, level of theorizing, early internet in particular, <laughs> later. Um, but at the time, honestly, it was just people in their basements probably because the internet didn't exist. But it became like a, a lightning rod for you know this kind of like theorizing that nowadays is like probably the most 
popular form of watching television, right? Mm, is yeah. people on like Reddit trying to figure out a show before it actually gets to its ending. Um, so all to say that led to some very interesting interpretations of some of the symbology that you were talking about. Um, for my money, I think the most obvious thing you could say, which you've already pointed out is thematically, this movie's about creative block. It's about parenthood. It's about alcoholism. Um, these things that King very clearly wrestled with in his personal life. That's all kind of wrapped up into a banger ghost story. However, there are some other theories that I would love to run through with you, John, and see what you think about yeah. them. You want me to start it. going through them? Let's just, yeah, let's just do a little call and response. We'll okay. just, yeah. we'll, we'll just see how this goes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about this one later, but I just want to tag it. But the one of the most popular, and I think the most likely of uh, Kubrick's readings is that it's a metaphor for Native American genocide or just genocide in general. I'm going to save the, that to uh, talk about it later. Right. The wave Wait. of terror that swept across America is here. Yeah. Yes. 100%. Yep, so we're going to dive into that in our next section, or one of our later sections. But I just want to shout it out. Another one. Uh, Danny and Jack are Theseus and the Minotaur. Obviously, this one revolves around the garden, but that this whole film is playing out as that kind of um, Greek story. What do you think? Yes or no? I I, I want to briefly correct you and say it's Theseus, so so get out of here. My classical, that classical mythology class is coming in handy. I'm going to say... you know, there's some stuff. We got the labyrinth. We got the mine. You know, it's kind of just the labyrinth, actually. <laughs> yeah, pretty shallow stuff, but that's okay. Um, here's a good one. Here's my favorite. Yeah. And after this one, we're going to go into ones that are out absolutely deranged. Uh, so <laughs> the Overlook Hotel is, in fact, hell, which Jack has been condemned to after killing his family. So the explanation of this is that there's the ghosts. Obviously it's impossible to escape. It's constantly changing landscape. The hotel layout doesn't make sense. And ultimately the theory here is that Danny and Wendy are spirits tormenting Jack as he relives the winter where he did the most heinous thing he had ever done, murdering his family over and over and over again until he himself dies in a horrible, hellish suffering, torturous way, which also makes sense of the, you've always been the caretaker here line mm. thoughts yes yeah. solid five out of ten here's okay. the thing it's not actively like abhorrent <laughs> like some of the other ones we're gonna get yeah. to it is unbelievably boring though i'm gonna yeah. give the minotaur in hindsight seven out of ten because it's just like what are we doing you know yeah. it was all dream they're in purgatory they're in hell like we can do better than that this isn't the end of lost this is a good movie fair enough <laughs> spoilers for the end of lost by the way sorry <laughs> I'm actually not apologizing. That was it was such a bad ending that I, I that just, you feel you know watched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, yeah. Don't watch it. Well, how about this one? The Overlook Hotel isn't haunted. It's actually a CIA experiment, and they're being microdosed into having I think these delusions. I'm gonna say six out of ten. I, there you <laughs> go. Why not? There's a isn't there like a shirt that Danny's wearing that could be interpreted as like some CIA adjacent yep. thing? I, I don't know. Which yeah, leads us go. to the best and i'm just gonna read this quote straight from uh wikipedia evidently officials saw kubrick's great sci-fi film 2001 a space Odyssey in 1968 and hired the director for the job of shooting the moon landing by the time 1979 rolled around kubrick felt guilty about the ordeal he couldn't straight up admit it but he could put (laughs) hints in his movie hints including danny wearing an apollo 11 shirt 
Tang being present in the pantry in room 237, alluding to the 237,000 miles between Earth and the moon. Also, the repeated pattern of the carpets of the Overlook Hotel are the exact octagonal structure of the Kennedy Space Center. Of course, these are all pretty flimsy arguments. Children love <laughs> space, so a kid wearing a shirt with a spaceship, especially when Star Wars was so new, isn't that odd. Tang was a popular drink, not just for astronauts. Also, the moon is approximately 238,900 miles from the earth not 237,000 I really appreciate when Wikipedia drops <laughs> just, the editorial took, voice and it's just like you shots. know this one doesn't really this one doesn't really land <laughs> this isn't it would you like to weigh in on the shining being about the faking of the mid landing John I think that's 10 out of 10 I mean that's okay. just obviously that's accurate. just right yeah that's that's just, right. just did you see I I don't think you even mentioned it uh, hanging on the wall are uh murals that look like the saturn V rocket mike come on wake up i wake like sheeple (laughs) it's right in front of you here you're gonna believe the government okay so we got to get back to being on track this podcast has gotten as deranged as the movie so if anyone wants more information about this there is a documentary called room 237 um that dives into this pretty pretty directly yeah would you say that's worth it mike i think if oh, you're yeah. interested in this i think it's, it's worth it yeah i would say it's almost like wow it's one of my favorite like double feature resources actually um sure i can agree it, with it's, that it's yeah. weirdly prophetic now which i'm sure we'll get into in the next section but yeah um, for now i think this just highlights that this movie's open-endedness is like a, a, a little addict drug for the imagination i think it's wonderful so yeah for the most part totally i think it works. uh um, go ahead no i do you want to talk about the direction or do you want to talk about the score do you want to take like an hour to dive into the sound of this or, you know what you're you're making me feel bad because i'm just not going to have that much stuff about it so let's do the score because i do want okay. to call out the score but i really don't have much to say except that a it's incredible so it uses a lot of um synth work it uses a lot of uh you know themes from from classicism actually remix the dse ray obviously is starts the movie very famously mostly i want to shout out wendy carlos who uh worked on this i already mentioned along with rachel elkind uh they did exceptional work but i principally just want to mention if you don't know who she is wendy carlos is one of the most influential uh, musicians actually kind of ever because she really pushed a lot of the work with early synthesizers. Uh, very well known for a, a album called Switched on Bach in 1968, which was Johann Sebastian Bach music performed on a Moog synthesizer. Um, also the first transgender person to win a Grammy award, which is really incredible. Oh, that's cool. She's just kind of an icon and is super, super important. Uh, also though, I was going to put this in stray thoughts, but I actually think I have too many. So I'm just going to put it here. Uh, also vowed never to work with Kubrick after this movie Yeah, that checks because out. yeah. Uh, so what happened is this movie famously went through a lot of different cuts and actually was even being cut after it was in the theater. Um, weirdly always being edited down, which is usually the opposite of how director's cuts work. He kept taking things out of the movie, which uh, it's actually really fascinating. I just I genuinely don't know enough to talk about it more because I haven't seen any of those taken out things. I probably should have. But uh, the whole thing, though, is that apparently the cut that they first saw when they saw the movie was much, much longer. 
And they made a lot of music for scenes that ended up getting cut entirely and felt really upset about that because it, it had never been communicated to them. They Apparently, they like found that out when they saw the movie. Wow. Uh, and so they were just, yeah, which is kind of, is bad. Like, just don't get me wrong. That is just not a very professional way of communicating with your artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so she was just like, cool, I'm out. So, yeah, good, good on uh, Good Times for Kubrick amazing score though right and, yeah. and i would also say very iconic if you think about oh, the opening yep. especially yep. right yep. Yep. yep um that's just and also in terms of actually i do have more to say about it in terms of setting atmosphere it's so so good like the those little high screeching notes with yeah. like the strange melodies playing under them i want to call out i may edit it in here i want to call out that moment when Jack is looking down onto the model of the labyrinth, right? Oh, God, and yes. and you see the little and then it cuts, I guess, to an overhead shot. It's a little unclear because you see what looks like Wendy Wendy and Danny walking around inside. And the music is this bone chilling like synth with these like little icy drops of piano or something behind it. And it's so evocative. In a scene where technically nothing is happening, like really it's just it's just Jack. Tor- Actually, that scene is a great microcosm of why the movie works in general. Because yeah. on the paper, it's just Jack looks down on a labyrinth, and then we see the labyrinth from above with Jack, with Wendy and Danny walking around it. And it's just like, okay, who cares? In the movie, you have Jack Nicholson giving this crazy, creepy face. Yeah. You yeah, have yeah, yeah. this amazing cinematography as we're framing the thing as we're falling down on it, and then you have this horror, this like like horror-inducing score. This like tension inducing score i should say behind it all of those pieces aesthetically lifted so much higher than just what's happening like technically right just what the action is um actually so yeah i did have a lot to say about the score now that you say that yeah it's just incredible she killed it it's 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 so good it's so good also very hard to listen to because there was a lot of copyright issues with the score um, hmm. There's always all this drama around Kubrick stuff. Yeah, by the way, I don't psycho, know. I guess that's just him. So yeah, yeah. Um, there was all these like licensing issues with it, so you can't just like look up. You know, you can't just go to Amazon and just buy the score. Like you yeah. have to like get it from sources. Or nowadays, I it's around YouTube and stuff. But um, <laughs> just one of those funny things. But yeah, it, it's unbelievable. It's so good. Yeah. Yep. Uh, they, see, I knew you were going to have something to say. You yep, liar. yep. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I should have trusted yeah, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's unbelievable. I think it, it's probably the most ripped off horse like score ever. I don't know. It sure. just is the quintessential one. You Maybe said Psycho is up there. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah. I mean, even just watching, I was watching Barbarian this last year, and and they're like the opening title card of that does the discordant noise and the quasi screams in the background, and it's all blending together. And there's violin chords, and you're just like, oh yeah, that's The Shining. The Shining is just like bleeding through in this random like moment of a title card and that's how like yeah. influential it is in the, like the 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 cultural imagination of horror even 40 years later it's just wild yeah i don't know it's i, I think it's it's probably my favorite score in any movie ever and i'm not even exactly i could i i could i i wouldn't say that for me but it is up there i think for a yeah. horror actually i could easily say that for a horror movie yeah yeah oh yeah 100 yeah. percent. it's like hey you want you want dread incarnate <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> let's let's do it. Bah, 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 bah. I can't do the the main theme. It will not surprise why. you to know, Mike, uh, that I haven't seen Barbarian yet, so I oh, can't weigh well, in on that. Next part. next week on the pod, Barbarian. Mm, uh, you know, I'm sick that day. We'll get so. Uh, <laughs> go so anyway, yeah, we'll move off. Uh, 
I got one more, one more category, and this is kind of my my uh my lane that I love, and that is just like the you already touched on it, but the direction, the cinematography. I definitely had the maze thing in here as just like yeah. one of those moments. But is there a movie that you can think of that we've done that has more, and I mean like this in terms of quantity, but more iconic and pop culturally relevant shots than this movie? Mm. Yeah. Blood from yeah. the elevators. You think of Danny riding his bike down the hallway, coming up on the twins. Um, I mean, I remember Simpson parodies of this long before ever seeing the movie, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, the way that Kubrick employs the hand camera has literally redefined horror. I mean, it's just like one study of those camp. tricks. Study camp, yeah, study camp, sorry. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like redefine the genre. Obviously, there's the axe coming through the wall. There's the shot of Wendy over the shoulder looking at the typewriter with the all work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. Also um, a great score moment. I forgot about that. hundred percent. Yeah. It's just one of those films where I could list off seven more um, all the way down. And you're just like, there are just so many singular shots and cinematography choices and directing choices that have like carried on into like the very fabric of our, our like our filmmaking society. So yeah. I don't know if you have anything that you want to shout out. I, I I'm trying to make myself not go through all of them in detail Yeah, because no one cares. But my goodness, this movie, like Kubrick shoots the hell out of this movie. And it's probably one of the most effective parts of the film. I'm going to I'm just going to really quickly drag out the old person soapbox one more time and just say that for me, the biggest thing and this one, definitely a lot of directors do still do. But I think mainstream movies definitely shied away from this is how long it holds so many of its shots. Right. And like. It's so foreign now because we're expecting, you know, we're expecting it to keep cutting or expecting all these things, but it will have this amazingly composed shot with this very slow zoom out, which really helps the shot because it keeps changing the framing as it's going. And you get to just revel in all of the intricacy of what you're looking at, right? Yeah. You get to just soak in. I think about even a small one, like when they're watching the TV in in the middle of the hotel room, right? Mm. Um which great little detail the tv has no cords going to it whatsoever so there's a lot of little things that what? are oh, slightly cool. off-putting <laughs> yeah there's there's a lot there's a lot of slightly off-putting things in the movie which i think is so cool but the shot and the way it zooms out and you just slowly take in the scene of the snow and the tv and danny and wendy sitting there and the isolation of the hotel and the coldness of it there's just so much and there's so many shots like that. I agree with you. It's if we wanted to name them all, we'd be here for four hours. So yeah, it's incredible. It's so good. Um, anything else? This is one of those weird cases where we've been talking an hour, but I still feel like we haven't done justice to the movie. Uh, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. so, there's so much that's good in it, but, um, uh, Danny's haircut, like Holy bangs, Batman crime, Holy crime. Bowl cut, yeah. <laughs> Were you a you were you a bowl cut kid? Oh ever? yeah, 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 yeah. Big time, yeah. huh? Yeah, my, not, yeah by I not by choice. Not by choice. You didn't you didn't walk into the barber and say that's it. Yeah, never by that's choice. That's what I want. No, that was my parents did that crime to me. That's actually what this movie's about. It's about the the genocide that's of the, my my hairstyle. <laughs> that's the real horror, as we all know. That's right. I don't that's, think I had the right like hair for it. Like I never had it, but I'm sure I, I would know. have because it maybe was. Just, I feel like it was a thing for parents. kids in the. I don't know. That that must be it. <laughs> Shoutouts to Mike's parents. I'm sorry for you guys if you ever listen to this. Just got a stray. Catch it strays. Okay, well let's move on then. Um, things that held this movie back. It's a short list for me. Um, the the only one that 
Okay, well, one of them is a little esoteric. One of them is very specific. Listen, we just talked about how amazing the cinematography of this movie is. Me and Mike, we're we're a couple of dopes. Like, we're idiots. Nothing yeah. we say should matter compared to literally one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. Yet, I am still going to sit here and say that the 1970s flash zooms, like quick zooms in, always take me out of the movie every single time. Oh, yeah, in sure. any movie <laughs> I ever see. I'm always like, oh, I didn't know I was watching a comedy from the 19 from 1974. It's just it's it's one of those things. Do you know what it's like, Mike? It's what? like record scratches in hip hop music, right? Yeah. Where for a while it was part of the language, but then all at once everyone just decided, now we're done with that. And now it's so dated that if you hear it, it instantly transports you back to that time. And yeah. like the zoom ins, it's just like one of those things that everyone just collectively decided, no, that looks kind of dumb. So it never comes up anymore. And when I see it, I'm just like, oh, I forgot this movie is 45 years old or whatever. Right. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. Again, what do I know? Greatest cinematographer ever or great greatest director of all time. Uh, but then I'm sitting here saying that kind of sucked. So I think I'm right. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I don't really have anything to add. I mean, like, I was actually preparing for yeah. you to take the opposite side, but you're just oh, there. No, no, yeah, no. Just, I'm just like yeah. every time there's a there's, it's, I, I the noise I always think is Whoa! like that's just like yeah. the noise that pops into my head and uh, it never it Luckily, never works. Yeah. I guess we should clarify. I think there's only like two in the movie or maybe yeah, three, yeah, so it's yeah. not like egregious, but it it does stick out though. You notice it. Yep. Um, the only other one isn't really a criticism, but in line of what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, is the movie like too vague? Is it too messy with it's like, I'm not going to tell you things and let you read into it. And now it's just so open that anyone can kind of read anything into it. So it sort of means nothing as much as it means everything. I don't know if that point totally makes sense. I guess I'm just trying to convey that. Like I, part of me wonders if it isn't a better movie if it just shores up its symbolism like a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah. But then does that also not discredit the premise of the movie that it's so open that you could find anything? I, I, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to hold that too, too firmly, but I, I just kind of wonder if maybe it shouldn't have been a little tidier with all of these stray threads going everywhere. Yeah, I think I think what confuses me and why this also appears in my what didn't work is is kind of like that there's it's not haphazard. Nothing Stanley Kubrick does is like haphazard. But there is an element to this in which I'm a little confused at like what he chooses to leave opaque and what he doesn't. Um yeah. so like yeah. I don't actually get every time I rewatch this movie, I don't understand what Danny's shining ability like what purpose it serves in this movie at all in terms of the yeah. plot or the action. And all it really does is is makes it clear that there is something supernatural going on in this world. And I'm just like, well, that seems like a perfect like thing to leave vague is like, is there a ghost or not? Right. And mm. so like the, the whole shining ability is, is so deeply like sci-fi that it kind of like muddles that question that I think the movie's trying to get you to grapple with um, or, sure. or sorry, muddles it by making it too clear. Right. That there is definitely yeah. <laughs> something here. Right. There's definitely a supernatural element to this world. Um, and then when it comes to like some of the symbology, you're just like, then it chooses not to be very clear. It chooses to be incredibly, like you're saying, overtly opaque. And then there's another layer of this, which is how do you and can you 
really divest that opaqueness from like what people have done in the name of this movie. Cause there's some crazy people who have like used this movie to put forward some pretty heinous stuff that I'm just not going to repeat on this podcast. You can research it. Um, that uh, this has definitely become one of those lightning rods to some, a level of like internet extremism yeah. that is just uncomfortable. And some of that comes from the fact that he is willing to dabble in things like violence and genocide and, or hint at the symbology of, the demonic or um you know this nation's past without being clear on where he stands on it right um yeah so anyway i don't really have an answer for you other than like there is some of the fruit of it that's pretty gross and then there's a part of me that's just like confused that where he draws the line on clarity versus lack thereof and it's and i feel like i totally agree and i feel like the obvious response of well he wanted you to be confused only takes us so far because yeah. that's the thing with the Kubrick stuff is that anytime you bring up something like that, there's the immediate counterpoint of like, well, he was a genius and he wanted you to think that. And it's like, listen, we could do that all day, but at a certain point, it's just a movie. So yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what did the movie tell me? And, you know, I can go back and forth on how much of an auteur he is, but it's still a movie telling me something or, or yeah. you know, showing me something. Um, so, yeah, I tend to agree. But, you know, also, uh, yeah, what we're saying is we know better than Kubrick. I'm better than Kubrick at this. Yeah. At making shining we, movies. So. We, we could do it. To, to, I mean, Stephen King on ironically would probably say. Oh, that. Lord. Go to hell. Good times. Stephen Stephen King. King. Do you have anything else for why this movie doesn't yeah, work? Yeah, we've already touched on it. And this is like, I'm not going to oh, litigate yeah. it. But Shelley, Stanley Kubrick was an abusive monster to Shelley Duvall. Um, like in a way that actually damaged her too. Uh, it seemingly yeah. like messed up her career for a while. Um and yeah, it, it just seems to come from the fact that he was trying to break her by like doing more and more shoots. And he chose to like, there's something that's, and this is a little conspiracy theory E, but I think it makes sense, which is that he made the very odd choice at this time of shooting the movie sequentially. And there's a yeah. lot of people who think that's because he wanted her to actually unravel as the shooting went on. So that by he got, by the time he gets to like the staircase scene at the end, she is actually like frayed mentally and emotionally. Um, yeah. obviously there's like no way to prove that, but that just like generally speaking by what you hear from the set and like how he dragged out the shots that she was in specifically and like treated her it all kind of points. That's probably the case. Um, mm. and that's a, it's like a level of filmmaking and abuse that like just wouldn't, it just like would not fly today. Yeah. Um, and, and we're better for it as a society and as an artistic community. So, well, and I think the key yeah. thing is that like, because this is something a little bit of, film history context for any listeners would be that this was much more in vogue in the past. Like the idea of the director, like, you know, basically like I'll do whatever I can to get a good performances and I'll, you know, put my actors through hell. It certainly has gone by the wayside. And I think the most telling thing to say about that is that the performances haven't gotten worse. Right. Yeah. Like, and I think yeah. that's, what's so funny is that you have these, all these, alter directors who are like, I have to put my actors through hell to d demonstrate that. But then in the last 10, 15, 20 years, you have better directors who are like, well, I could just get good actors and trust them and work with them. And yeah. all, and like, you still get amazing performances. Like it, you didn't need to do that. I think is the funniest part about it. So cosmically funny. It, it's tragic in a small scale. So uh, yeah, totally agree. I think it's just, I I also I don't necessarily want to litigate this because it it would get it's it's a much much bigger topic. But I will also just I just want to call attention to the fact that Kubrick also just not very good on female characters broadly speaking. And yeah. like 
I think this might even be like from a certain perspective the most the the most like central to a plot any female character is in any of his movies, which is wild because she's not that yeah. central to the plot. Um and is rewarded by being a you know, in some ways not the best characterization or and I don't know. It's just kind of one of those icky things. And and a lot of people are just like, Oh yeah, he's old. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't call that out, you know? So yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Weird. Weird. I think, I think something that will, something that will only continue to age worse. Right. Yeah. Like I think over time that just becomes sticks out more and more. Um, yeah. So totally there, totally there with you. Also, it's really sad because it, it hurt her career long-term too. That yep. she she struggled to stay in acting because of her experiences. Like, truly, so. t- truly damaged her as a person. Yeah. Yep. So yep. not good. Uh, I think that's it. Anything else? Uh, no, that's all I got. Okay, great. Well, stick around. After the break, we're gonna get into some stray thoughts and then uh, some dialogue about the movie. Welcome back. In this part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared a few stray thoughts, uh, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. Uh, Let's just go back and forth. Mike, what do you got? Uh, Two characters share the name of their actors in this movie, Jack and Danny. Uh, That's weird. And I'm just going to ask it. Conspiracy? Question mark? Is this a documentary? What do you think? Huh? Huh? I don't want to be mean, but like we're scraping the bottom of the barrel with some of these things. Huh? <laughs> we, need a, we, we need to lower the number of stray thoughts if that's what we're starting with. Uh, first of all, name another movie. Name another movie where that's happened, John. You can't. I I, I feel like I could if you, you gave can't. me more time. Yep. No. Nope. Okay. Go. Go, Mr. Oh, it's so obvious. <sighs> no. There's only... What I will grant you is that there's only like five actors in the movie. So it it is... It's like... 20%. But they're also very common names. Daniel and Jack. Like, come on. What are we doing here? <laughs> I'm just I'm, I'm just asking questions. That's it, John. Okay, yeah. Uh, obviously, it points to the government's interfering in Kubrick's personal life. I think that's the only possible explanation. The CIA was behind it. Um, <laughs> what are those weird things? So Kubrick in this movie... Like, like well-known abusive towards Shelley uh, Duvall. Not good, right? We don't like yeah. it. On the flip side, in what is a very confusing reversal, I mean, it makes sense in a, from a certain perspective, but Kubrick went out of his way while making this movie to make sure that Danny Lloyd, the child actor, did not know this was a horror movie. Yeah, it's weird. Um, yeah, this is my favorite. Yeah, this like, is my favorite. Like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> apparently did all of these weird, like, like they did all these specific things with like how they cut it, how they like edit it. You can actually kind of tell when you know that watching the movie that like, you know, any scene where there's something horrific and Danny's in the shot, his face is very clearly not toward looking towards the horror thing. Um, So yeah, I mean, that's cool, I guess. Like I like that, but it's just really weird. The dichotomy between, you know, I'm going to just literally abuse this adult actor, but then this kid, we're going to do all of this apparently excru Like it made so many things harder that he would go out of his way to just make sure that the actor did not know the nature of the movie. Apparently he didn't find out until he saw it like years later and was like, Whoa, that was a horror movie. Whoa. Um, yeah, that was yeah. a lot more intense. Than I remember weird. I don't know. 
So do you, do you want me to do this or do you want to do it, Judd? This I'll tell is, you what. This you, is the ultimate, you, the penultimate. The, the I'll tell you what. You do it because I have another stray thought I could have snuck in there. Um, so, yeah, go go for okay. it, Mike. Worst hang, John yep. Divide. Yep. Uh, yep. I'm curious who you're picking, though. Oh, is it really? Because this is, I think, like, this is the ultimate showdown. This is like, they're like the same person, just a different circumstance. So, worst hang, <laughs> Luan Davis or okay. Jack Torrance. Right. So, there's a very important question here. <laughs> What stage of the movie is Jack Torrance in? Is it like like labyrinth? Is it like axe wielding? Is it like the guy that comes to the overlook at the beginning of the movie? Uh, you know, wh- wh- where are we encountering so, Jack Torrance here? See, this is an interesting question because I, I, I'm gonna let me let me ask you a follow up. Am I am I to take? Yeah. Should I assume that you would prefer to hang out with Jack at the beginning of this movie than the end? So uh, you you cut into my own joke a little bit because I was going to say it doesn't actually matter. The answer is obviously Jack Torrance. And the reason why is because whichever point you find him in, there's still something better going on. So first of all, the beginning of the movie, he's just kind of a chill. Like he's obviously acting being normal, but that's better than like this low life degenerate guy who's just being an asshole. I'll take that seven days a week. At least he's putting Middle, on a show. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Middle of the movie, late part of the movie. Hey, at least you know where he stands, right? He's looking at you saying he's gonna bash your brains in. It's not good. He's but a it's also shooter. not vague. Yeah, he's a yeah. straight shooter, yeah. He's he's clearly communicating and that's what you want in a friendship or, or you in, know what? in a hang. So. And you know what? At the end of the movie, he's dead. And I'm pretty sure Lewin Davis will never die because he's a cockroach. So, yeah. you know. So there we go. Checkmate. Man. Sorry, <laughs> we nailed Tyler. it. Sorry, Tyler. We got you, buddy. Um, <laughs> This is brutal. This might be worse than Baron Harkonnen. <laughs> tough take. <laughs> this, I, I was just thinking that. I was like, better or worse than Baron Harkonnen? We should sneak Baron Harkonnen into some of those at some point. Yeah. I'd be curious. Yeah. Um, Little kids speaking in monotone, universally Ooh. creepy shortcut. Is it just like, is it almost lazy at this point? Because it's just like always plays. For me, I guess what I'm saying is for me, that always plays as instantly creepy. Yeah. Like out the kid could be the kid could be reciting a recipe for apple pie. And if there's doing it in monotone, I'm just like, yeah, it's creepy. I'm creeped out. I'm scared, you know? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think it's a cheat code for sure. And uh I like I said I take if, that I take that kid back to the hospital, John. I've already made myself clear yeah. on this one. Okay, so. I, that's what I was gonna ask. I was gonna say if Audie walked in and just started saying anything but monotone. No, nope. what what's your response? Nope. Yeah, you're just out. Yep, I'm like, hey, <laughs> in the car, we're going on a, a vacation. Ricky, we need a new kid. Yep. This one isn't working. This one is defective. Uh, <laughs> we are leaving anyway. <laughs> uh, so. This is just a, this is like the definition of a straight thought. I was watching this movie and I was like, "Dang, Danny's pretty good at darts." And then I was just huh. kind of like, "Yeah, he hits like a, a you know he hits the board. He's like a little kid, you know, in the beginning of the movie when he's playing in the playroom. He's he's not bad. I feel like that should have come back Could, later in the movie, like got in Jack in the Eye or something. I don't know. Sure. Can I tell you? It's funny because I always thought about that in the context of like, weren't aren't old people just like better at things than we are now like like somehow in my head 
I was just more willing to accept that a nine-year-old in 1980 was probably actually good at darts because, like, what else is he going to do with his life? And, like, a nine-year-old <laughs> today is, like, good at Fortnite or something. You know, sure. it's just, like, it's different. It's different. Maybe. I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard when you aren't, like, tall enough to be in front of the board, I imagine. That's just strange. But Man, with that in mind, how did he do that? That know. was the true. That's the how shining. we knew he was special. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that, that was the real show. Um... Not victim blaming. No victim blaming here. Oh, wow. Good start. <laughs> yeah. But what did Wendy ever see in Jack Torrance? Like, mm. I just want to know. Like, yeah. they've clearly, so they've, Danny's eight or nine. So they've been together, you know, at least a decade, probably. Yeah. So like, what, what is he bringing to the table that she's like, this guy, I like this guy. Uh, I want to, uh, I want to hang out with that guy. I just don't think there's a lot there. Effectiveness as an educator um mm, really that's good probably it. shoveling snow for a living uh okay <laughs> prematurely balding I'm, I'm you know what i'm gonna rest my slimy. case <laughs> i feel like seems to be sweating even in a like snowstorm uh i got nothing <laughs> i don't know yeah nothing great at, great with an axe yeah you know, oh, if that's your you criteria go. maybe she saw him chopping some wood it was just like guy looks strong a, a I pro, a pro, that's all i got a prolific writer i mean he bangs out quite a, a manuscript those are so. a lot of pages that is true you can't yeah. you can't fault that so that's a good segue uh, yeah <laughs> um yeah let's talk about jack's uh all work and no play make jack a dull boy novel i love and i never remember this until i said the movie i love that he has like different styles indentations <laughs> There is like some where it's like Old Testament poetry lining. Yeah. I mean, my boy has yeah. range as a writer. Uh, fun fact of the day, Stanley Kubrick made his secretary type up all those pages <laughs> and it took weeks, uh, which yep. sounds like the worst job ever on an old fashioned typewriter. But all to say, I'm impressed. So when you ask, what does he bring to the table? That guy, he knows historical writing. He knows how to get into the classics. He knows how to format yeah. a poem. He knows how to. He's indent, clearly, he's clearly well read. Yeah, yeah, he's clearly well read to be able to do that. It's great yeah, work, man. Shout so, out to that secretary. I actually, you're just gonna have to go again because you stole mine with the no, secretary thing. Sorry. Shout out to that secretary though, man. That's that's a brutal. Hey, you show up to work one day, your boss is like, "Hey, because uh, you type this out." Oh, sure, like you know, a few pages of it. No, literally like a novel's like. Yeah, nine hundred. Uh, it'll take you a few weeks have fun i guess you think and just, that that's what you think that secretary actually went crazy and killed someone with an axe like, yeah i mean we we could never know would. uh we never heard we never heard from them again uh i will say though like like unironically i think it is so effective like again talking about how long they stay on shots like yeah the longer that she keeps flipping through it and the music is rising yep. and like that's a great scene i think it's incredible but it's, a, uh, it's the definition yeah. of like an uh-oh scene you're like uh oh <laughs> like oh no like, oh, this is <laughs> especially because it it reveals to her that this is not his insanity is not a new thing that like i think that's the scariest th thing about the yeah. scene is realizing yeah. like earlier in the movie when he was sitting there typing that's what he was doing yes i think that's it's so effective yep. anyways uh, but you should just go again because actually that, you stole mine. I'll be fair, John. We actually don't know that. Maybe if she had gotten to the very bottom, there would have been the next great American novel at the bottom. So <laughs> okay, yeah, you're like you're you right. Don't, the, you, the, don't, the... you don't know shit. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're right. Uh, um, okay, so I have to go again. You do. Yeah. You can this tell. Is your fault. You can tell that I don't like someone's work 
when their criticism of the movie made me more encouraged that I would like it. And that's how I feel about Stephen King is the moment I heard Stephen King was like, (laughs) I don't like this adaptation. I was like, this is probably the one for me. You're like, I I might have something in on that. I might be interested in that. I need to see this movie. I think the only counterpoint is that he praised the writing of JK Rowling, but has subsequently criticized her takes on transgenderism which is like a huge W for my boy. So I don't know. You know, he's got that going for him. I'm cool. His writing. Anytime's mean to JK Rowling. That sounds great. (laughs) We're always on board for that. Uh, I mean, unironically. Yeah. Uh, That's that's for real. Go, go Stephen King. Um, Speaking of Stephen King's novels, apparently this is one of those things that might be apocryphal. Apparently the, the, for the production of this movie, so Kubrick had um, finished with, Barry Lyndon, he was in his office. He was looking for inspiration. His secretary says that he was she she was tasked with bringing him like paperbacks, right? Just like whatever books she could find, basically, and that he would sit there during the day and go through them. And when he would get to a point in the reading the book that he hated it, he would throw it up against the wall, <laughs> which is just incredible, right? That's wonderful. And that she was like, it was. And she was like, and he would usually do it pretty quick into like within the first like you know 30 or 40 pages so so she was like so i just kept hearing during the day that books just being flown up against the wall and then suddenly i heard nothing for an hour for hours and that was when i walked in and found that he had picked up the shining and he read it all through in one setting um and so i don't know kind of just a funny little possibly apocryphal kubrick story yeah i love that fighting the book yeah i love that that's wonderful is that uh, how you go through uh, sermon ideas? You just read a part of the Bible, and when you get to a part you don't like, you just throw it up against the wall. That would be you. tough. That yeah. would be a... Not to, I, mean, I think you should. I'm a preacher, so I love the Bible, but uh, I wouldn't get very far in most books if I found something <laughs> that I was like, oh, don't like that. Um, I'm out. Ancient texts, man. They're always going to have a little something-something extra for you. Um, yeah, a little something spicy. Yeah. No, I do that a lot with, uh, you know with uh with with pets mostly sure um children you just throw your phone yeah, yeah. Uh, no no the pet or the child oh oh sorry yeah, the pet or yeah, the child yeah. okay you throw that yeah, i don't yeah. like i throw them <laughs> anyway tough uh, tough all work and no play makes mike a dull boy do you think Ooh. this isn't even one of my straight thoughts but do you think this podcast like is actually that like we think we're recording but we're actually just like drooling and like saying something insane and we've long since murdered our families do you think that's what's happening oh uh yeah i mean i, I stopped uploading these uh, years ago. ago you know years ago yeah yeah, yeah. this <laughs> okay. is we're just this is all happening in our heads all right makes sense well relatedly uh john is living in an abandoned snowden hotel your dream or your nightmare and also tacked onto that would you lay live in a place with a horrific history of like genocidal violence okay so it's a it's it's a several part question so we have to break it down first part is like 100 percent yes no question it's hard for me to watch the movie because as much as they're like oh this is so like creepy and isolating i'm just like man it looks lovely looks like a great time i would just look at all the food they have in the kitchen they have some generators they feel fine they have a radio no worries yeah sign me up I'm, i'm there in a heartbeat I considered looking if this kind of job exists, you know, um, it doesn't really anymore because they're better at keeping roads open to big hotels like yeah, this, but, uh, yeah, tough times for people, for introverts, you know, for people um, who want to go on a killing spree. Yeah. 
so for the second part, it's a complicated question. You actually made it more complicated by bringing up genocide specifically. I think that is something that is a lot more worrying. I think the general question of do you believe that there's like some element, some supernatural element to place and location that holds it, you know, beyond into time or whatever. I broadly speaking, I'm not there for that. That's actually, I think, more controversial than you might realize. Like, I feel like almost everyone, at least that I meet, does believe that to a certain degree. Yeah, sure. I actually think that's a very untenable position because anyone who says that simply does not recognize the amount of history and physically every single spot across all of, but also like North America, but also like Europe and kind of just everywhere. Yeah. So I I just think it's kind of dumb because it's like, they're like, oh, like, I just know there was something here because I read this newspaper thing. It's like, yeah, my guy, that's everywhere. Everywhere you are in North America and Europe and probably most of the world that has ever been inhabited, something horrible happened there. Yeah. Um, sure. Having said that, I also think that, like, we as human beings, we as emotional, fleshy things do respond to that. So whether or not it's real if you know the effect can be real does that make sense yeah so if if you're subject to the effect then like sure that's a real thing and like yeah it is a real response you're having but most of the time i'm pretty good about separating myself from that and i don't really feel it yeah yeah i think i think there's like an obvious thing of like yeah i've I've stood in the red square before and like actually felt a sensation of like history changed here but like that's obviously not like a divine or supernatural element making me feel a certain way and it's certainly not like dictating behavior as i said in that square it's me giving thought to like the impact of something bigger than myself right that's obviously an internal mechanism with me i'm I'm talking with i'll just say what matters is that you you. knew that yes going exactly and that and that you're responding that it doesn't make your response less real yes but like i would say definitively someone who doesn't know that would be there and be like cool what a cool square square. yeah Yeah, it was was pretty i don't know yeah yeah i'm with you i think you're right uh oh it's me now cool yeah uh i like that that was a good question um this is just a great anecdote i think this one's pretty well known um apparently when they went to shoot the axe scenes with jack nicholson they used all these prop doors, which is usually what they do in movies when someone has to like break down a door, right? Yeah. The problem is Jack Nicholson had worked previously as a fire marshal and firefighter in the California Air National Guard and was just like apparently demolishing the doors like eh. so quickly. So they actually replaced them with real doors, which I think Whoa. makes those shots way more visceral knowing that That's he wild. is actually yeah. chopping through doors. Um, which I didn't mention before. I actually meant to put this in what makes this movie work. The camera work when he's chopping the door is unreal. It is so visceral. And the way that it like slowly goes back with his windup and then like, and then connects, you know, basically the camera's just tracking the ax, but it's so good and so visceral. And I feel like I've never seen anything like it in a movie again. I don't know why it's unreal. Great shot. And, and, cooler because of that fact i think knowing that that's like a real freaking door that's crazy that's so yeah. much harder than i think people realize and he just demolishes that thing it's it's kind of it's very creepy it's good no that uh that actually relates to my final straight thought which is that they i think it was something like 85 doors in that sequence and they had to rehang all of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> which you want to talk about like <laughs> the worst job ever outside of being tasked with typing a novel 
of the same sentence over and over again. <laughs> like, have you ever hung a door? It it sucks. It like sucks. Like there's yeah. a balancing. It's, it's heavy. Really it's annoying. awful. Yeah. And it's even worse that you told me that those doors were real because I just kind of assumed they were prop doors in this light. It makes me wonder how many of them were prop and like at what point through the prop doors they had to switch to the real doors. Yeah. But Ugh, yeah, it's brutal. it's yeah, just brutal. tough. Well, Mike, we did one of those things where I didn't. I didn't like line these up where we're ending on a very dramatic one. Oh no. But here we go. This is it. This is our last straight thought for this movie. When he wakes up, this is like somewhere in the middle of the movie. It's not a very important scene. When he wakes up with Wendy, Wendy wakes him up with breakfast. I think it's still mm. kind of idyllic seeming. God, no he looks in her. the mirror and he checks his tongue. And I just want to ask, is this something people do when they wake up? Have you ever in your entire life, woken up looked mm. in the mirror and opened your mouth wide and looked out at your tongue yeah, I, it just yeah. struck me as like that's the weirdest thing i've ever seen do people do huh. that am i the weird one no no people don't do okay. that no that's weird people don't I do that think, i was like so, I have, am i like a sore throat or my tongue hurt yeah yeah, yeah. so the follow-up question is what yeah. was he doing is this i don't know why do you do that i just I'm don't now understand. just like thinking about it maybe it's strep maybe this whole thing was it undiagnosed just case sick. of strap? I don't know. Maybe he's just sick, John. Tough. Maybe, maybe he's just, just sick. you know. I don't maybe know. Maybe we should be asking how can that. we help Jack rather than <laughs> rather than like why can, how can we stop these murders? You know, it's yeah, the wrong exactly. question. John, yeah. I want to go up the stream and stop people from falling into the stream. There it pull is. Them out there it is. Um, definitely just needed a little. Just needed a few antibiotics, and everything's fine. <laughs> yep. There you go. Put a band-aid oh. on it. Let's go. Oh, man. Okay. Well, that that sums up for Stray Thoughts. That obviously wraps up every important thing we'd have to say about this movie. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, for this next part, we have a dialogue about the movie. To be totally to, – to open up the curtain a little bit. Mm. Uh, I think this was a hard one to find a topic to talk about. In a weird way, I think that's a symptom of what we've been saying with this movie, where it's simultaneously – too obscure or too opaque and too too op- transparent right like too open like it's i i it just feels really weird trying to decide like what's the interesting spiritual or, or higher level of dialogue you can have about this movie i think the obvious one is what we want to talk about but we also want to forefront that by noting that we're wildly unqualified to talk about it yeah um but that's Oops. just kind of the nature of the movie. And as much as we're unqualified, I do think there's so many fascinating things. Um, and basically, we're talking about the, the, the colonialist reading of the movie or the anti-colonialist reading of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I think this one, to start with, this is definitely agreed upon, I think, as the, the theme, one the, the crazy symbolic reading of the movie that's probably very, very much intentioned. Because yeah. it's actually hard not not to see it in the movie. Well, I yeah, mean, it's referenced directly in the script too. I mean, they bring up yeah. the Indian burial ground. It is white man's burden. They, they it's written. It is like written dialogue yeah. on top of symbology. Sorry, go on, go on. Even even the way that the the you you referenced when we were speaking off mic earlier that the the N word comes up and like very um, stark. Like like I think it really is no, jarring it when it happens. Movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's part of this dialogue, too, because the context is even him saying, like, this person is going to come mess things up and, you know, we have to kill them. And it's like, OK, well, I think that 
there's a reading of this movie that I am interested in. And I actually want to start, Mike, by talking about that scene. So, so we have the scene with Grady in the bathroom. Jack and Grady are in the bathroom. First of all, we've already been talking about, but maybe one of the greatest, most chilling scenes I've ever seen in any movie ever. Especially because, just like the whole movie, it ramps up in intensity. It starts off a little bit low stakes. Yeah. But as they talk, it gets more and more chilling until it's like straight up horrifying. Um, I think there's one thing I want to, there's one kind of idea about the thematic, this, this thematic idea of the movie that I, I want to zero in on and get some of your thoughts on and then wherever you want to go is fine. But sure. talking about the movie as a reading of almost the sins of the sins of America's past coming back and, and being part of the, the, the culture, this, and this, un this, this part of who we are that you almost can't divorce from our identity, right? I would say is like, broadly speaking, an interesting theme of the movie or, or something that the movie is concerned with. Yeah. I think what I'm really curious about is this thing. So Gray's in the bathroom, and we, we've already been referencing a lot, but he tells Jack, I've always been here. Yeah. And he tells Jack, you've always been the caretaker here. And we see this scene at the end, too, where Jack is in the photograph from Ju from July 4th, 1931, right? And I think all of those things together to me, so, so people have read a lot into that, right? And this is certainly not the only reading of those elements. To me, I think the movie is trying to say something about the way that we become folded into the dark history mm -hmm. if we don't resist it. Yeah. And in fact, if we choose to take part in it. Because yeah. you think about the hotel as representing, you know, to some extent America, I think that's not too controversial. Again, there are things like that July 4th date. There are things that, that are pointing to that. And I think what's so interesting to me about that, that discussion in the movie, that dialogue in the movie is that it, it points to this idea of like how we end up becoming trapped into that same story. Yeah. Jack, and Jack and Danny and Wendy are all start the movie seemingly as normal individuals, right? Maybe not. Maybe the, the darkness is in them and that's part of the story, blah, blah, blah. But they start as having their own agency. And I think part of the, um, part of the like, you know, insanity that grips Jack as the movie goes on is him becoming part of the story of the hotel, part of the history of the hotel. And it's almost that, it's almost like his actions make him, you know, outside of his own desires, possibly, I actually think he doesn't care, sort of shove him into being part of the story, whether he likes it or not. Sure. Part yeah. of the history, part of yeah. the, the crimes that have been happening forever. And again, like, I think, I, I don't know if it's quite right to pull a moral out of it per se, but... I would say that it's speaking to that idea of, you know, it, you know, the, the cliche one sentence version of this is you're doomed to repeat the crimes of the past if you don't know about them, if you don't, you know, resist them actively. But the artistic rendering of it is very effective, in my opinion. Right. Like, yeah. I think it it really hits that idea that he becomes tied up in this horror and the idea that he's always been a part of it, that, that even by engaging with it at all. You, you suddenly are always part of it. You're, you've, you're the same, you know, the same um, um, force that's always been there terrorizing um, 
these other people, right? Yeah. So I don't know that that I don't know if you have anywhere to go with that immediately, but if you have any thoughts on that or just this overall theme. Yeah, um, I'm, I, I'm I actually, curious to hear. I have a ton of thoughts. I'm trying to like actually come up with something that are coherent. You know, my brain whenever we engage in like these kind of conversations, you know, I'm kind of like red pilled from seminary to like think of the Bible. Um, just because that's like a symbol system and a context and a story network that, you know, just is like my framework for a lot of things. And, and as an Eastern text, especially like the old Testament as a Hebrew text and more of an Eastern culture, there's just like these two parts of it that are always very alien to us, but like, you know, both relate really to like violence and the concept of like the legacy and the impact of violence. One is that there is just, and you see this in like, Native American culture too, a lot of just like different um, religious practices outside of really our Western kind of framework, which is the idea that like the land remembers. Um, and in particular, the land remembers like bloodshed. So like the Hebrew prophets talk a lot about like the blood crying out. It's like seeped into the ground from like legacies of violence and injustice and oppression, especially violent oppression. And to the point where like the land has like soaked up kind of the misery that was caused upon it and like cries out for justice against those who perpetuated it. Right. Um, and it almost takes on like this, you'll see it in like the Hebrew prophetic poetry is like almost taking on this like character role of like literally speaking out to God for like some sort of reckoning over what was done unto it. And that goes all the way back to like the story of Cain and Abel and the first murder and like the blood that soaks in the ground and like becomes a witness against him and then a curse upon him. And this is just all to say, like, that's something that like comes to mind is that that's just like an imaginative framework for like what the effect of violence is upon our culture and upon the people that we bear and, you know, birth into the land and the culture that resides on a land that was built on violence. And ultimately how those things basically build up and build up and build up until it becomes like the very framework of the territory in which we reside. Right is built upon violence and thus cannot escape its violent past, which is what you're saying. So all, all I'll really say is like, that's one of those imageries that comes to mind with this movie. And then the other one is, is the cup of wrath, which is like this other symbol system of like consequence, especially like the consequence for like these parts of our human being or human nature that we know are wrong, but can't seem to divorce ourselves from either because they benefit us or they give us a sense of power. And it's always this like imagery in, in scripture of like, this bubbling cup of wine that is just like intoxicating and we want it even though it's going to destroy us. Right. And it becomes like a, a very symbolic thing of like self-destruction and the temptations that lead us towards self-destruction. We know that we should not do this. And yet there is just something about it that keeps drawing us back over and over again, even though the outcome is always destruction, wrath, right? It's always some form of obliteration or annihilation. And, and altogether, those two, like, really speak to me of this topic, right? It's There is this, like, trapping in which we can take part in a territory, especially, like, as Americans, um, a, a history that is so saturated with some form of atrocity or demonization that, like, unless there is a cleansing or a reckoning with that past, it will continuously cry out against us, Right. And we can deafen it and we can try to ignore it, but it's just like, it's going to find a way to be heard just like all trauma does. Right. Yeah. Um, which I think you've seen recently in our culture through riots, through a lot of this like cultural and social unrest is like, that's coming from 
us trying to ignore the ghost on top of the hill in the haunted house built on the Indian graveyard, mm. right? Um, it The land will cry out. The blood will cry out. It will be heard in some way, shape, or form. And then the other side of it is what you said. It's like, especially as like white people talking about this, or I'll just speak for myself. I know, you know, you have a different ethnic and racial background than me, but like as a, as a white American, like there is just something intoxicating about like, um, the American dream and, and the, the privilege that comes with it, that like, it seems that especially white Americans just like keep drinking from that well. Cause there's something so mm. intoxicating about the power and the privilege and all the benefit that comes with it. Manifest even if we, destiny and, yeah, hundred percent, even if we know the outcome of this is going to be some form of annihilation, like it is, it cannot end well. It is like a byproduct inherent to these actions of oppression and violence and discrimination um, that will eventually either suck us, like you said, into the past, into the legacy um, that we know is distasteful just from looking at it or reading about it, or it will lead us to be just the oblivious caretaker who is perpetuating the evil of the place without even realizing what's going on. So, but I think beyond even like, thinking of it in that kind of symbolic way, I think what The Shining really represents to me, and I'd be really curious to have your thoughts on this, is that how it it really stands even still today as like this very unique means in, in kind of form of grappling with our nation's past and, and really like the mm. atrocity of history. Because I think what's fascinating about this is it is so opaque. It is so symbolic. It is so vague. It is so, in a sense, inviting and also in a sense like, impenetrable as it engages this topic um that that is just so feels to me so like wildly different than how these things are engaged in pretty much every form and genre of cinema since you know you, you're gonna have the yeah. movies like amistad and these wikipedia article kind of inspired movies that like are i guess grappling with this head-on like these topics of history but they're doing so in a very sterilized way and very often in a way that's like not inviting us to reflect on our present day in a meaningful way or to find ourselves in these events of history or how we're repeating them. And then on like the other hand, you'll find like Tarantino who's like, I'm going to use my art and my engagement of these moments in history to actually like reckon with them. And, and in some ways like try to correct them in terms of like an inglorious bastards. Um, And yeah. So it's like, those all feel way more direct, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Sorry. Go on. Sorry, I was gonna say, or even like Jordan Peele, right? With like, yeah, like, yeah. That, like, like social conscious horror, right? Which is, yeah. which is a, a new kind of genre label that we could attach. It is, it is very fascinating. I, I, I really, um, I love a lot. I love everything you said. I'm, I'm, I am curious about that last point that you're asking me about because, you know, from a certain perspective, I think this movie presages a lot of that and and really hints at the social conscious way that we make art nowadays in in the last 10 or 15 years. Um, But it's also such a different philosophy about it. Like you're saying, I I would actually say just to put it into, into language that I I think Kubrick's coming from a perspective that is, is much more obviously experimental, but much more interested in working on the subconscious level of of viewers and and i think partially it's funny because there's a double edgedness to that partially that's why we're still so obsessed with kubrick like yeah. you know so many years later um in, in a less charitable reading it's also probably 
how we are able to bring so many things into Kubrick's work compared to more recent yeah, filmmakers sure. because yeah. it, it is so not, you know, it's working, it's doing so much of its work beneath the surface that it's easier, even with his other movies, 2001, Strange Love, um, Eyes Wide Shut, obviously, it's so much easier to bring my own things to the movie and see what it gives me back for it, right? If that yeah. makes sense. With that in mind, I I guess one thing I am sort of curious about, and this is an unanswerable question, right? Like, we, we there's no way of actually knowing this. But the thing I do sometimes wonder is if there is some way of measuring effectiveness of getting people to reckon with these ideas, which one is more effective? Mm. You know, you think about... So, so like Kubrick's movies, one thing we didn't mention, um, which I got this from the documentary, and this is actually a small detail and one that wouldn't have hit for most people, but I still can't ever escape how fascinating it is that some of the posters we didn't mention also all time iconic uh, poster for this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The and shine, trailer, the the, yeah. the yellow with the yeah. oh, in the trailer, but the yellow with that creepy face that says "Shining Great Times." Yeah. Some of the posters for this movie, though had the line on it, the wave of terror that swept across America is here. So something like that, I think, plays into what we're talking about, which is that this movie is concerned with that that reading of like Native American genocide. Like that is such a part of the movie, but he's not willing to reckon with it directly. He would rather keep putting the 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 ideas of the language of that and the visual um and and the visualness of that the the sorry the images of that he just wants to sort of touch them to you like yeah. just vaguely push them your way and almost make it sit with you more as a feeling than a thought and if you think about as comparison like Django and Chains a great example right because that's reckoning with an extremely dark part of America's past and it's you know the Tarantino project is maybe something that's beyond the scope of this particular episode, but that has a much more, it, it does work on the feeling sensation because you have this visceral response to how much you enjoy watching, you know, slaveholders get shot brutally. Yeah. Um, but I also, but, but the, the premise of it sits as a thought. It's a very directly communicated thing of these people are evil. We're going to kill them great and if there's one criticism i have of that as compared to the shining or movies like the shining and and also just to note i'm not saying kubrick is like some incredibly progressive thinker or director right? i think we've already established he has a lot of problems but if there's one thing i would grant it's that because of the opaqueness there's the possibility that the ultimate message is much more challenging because like the message i would pull out of the shining is much more is one in which I'm much more complicit as the bad guy, right? Yeah. I think The Shining, like the readings of its of its commentary on um, genocide, is much more accusatory towards like the average person because because it's working so much more in symbolism, and because it's actually very hard not to have a reading of the movie where. Jack isn't on some level representative of just everyone in America, right? Yeah. Of just the way that we, you know, engage with this and don't engage with this and think that we're fine and think that we're above it. 
but then like i said get folded into the history anyways because we're not resisting it and then it just becomes part of what we do and part of me thinks that that sort of pit in your stomach feeling you get when you start chasing that line of thinking ultimately does more to make you you personally reckon with this kind of subject matter um that's like i said an impossible question to answer though and you know we keep giving all these qualifiers over this section but but i do think it is a part of how kubrick approached filmmaking that really is different than movies today that approach these topics um it's different than the approach that movies today have when it comes to these topics but it's hard to say if it's better or worse Hey, everybody. Thank you again so much for listening. Uh, this was a good episode. I enjoyed talking about this movie, Mike. Yeah, this movie's great. I don't know, man. Yeah. We should do horror more often. Barbarian next uh, week. Let's go. Nope. Well, <laughs> it's funny. We're not doing Barbarian ever. I'm out. Uh, we are, in fact, doing a... Would you call it a horror movie? Or would you call it an action movie? Uh, it's, Maybe we should just done, leave that one in the air. Done, we've already done the horror movie. We'll talk about it next week on this episode. <laughs> what is it? We will. T- next week, we are doing... Aliens, the 1986 action. You know, Wikipedia just, I guess, bypasses everything and says science fiction film, which I think is kind of lazy. Uh, it's clearly sense. either an action or a horror movie. The 1986 science fiction film written and directed by James Cameron, probably one of the all-time greatest action movies ever? Question mark? Uh, yes. We'll see. Uh, it's not much of a question mark. We all agree with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before that, Mike and I do have a final question to end the podcast Mike, mine's lazy. Mine's boring. It's it's just right there. It's it's straightforward. I'm just gonna we're just gonna do this, okay? Would you take the job at the Overlook Hotel? I'm saying not like you having seen The Shining and knowing all this. I'm saying at the beginning, you're Jack Torrance. You you have your family and you're not crazy. You're you, and we say, hey, you can come up to this hotel. The last guy murdered his family. Don't worry about that. You get probably decent pay you get the hotel for three months uh are you in or are you out uh yeah i think it's like the question changes entirely the moment you have a kid because i think it's like absolutely evil that he's like really making this child go live in a snowed in hotel for like four months <laughs> that's insane. funnily enough i that's also felt deranged. like as a kid i wouldn't mind that i'd be i'd be hyped as that i, as I just don't about? i just don't think that's true i think you're just like misremembering being nine how bored you are like when you can't see your friends for even like a week like I imagine like point. not being around other kids for like and only your parents months for months in a cabin like a hotel. that's a that's a really solid wild point. yeah you really and, brought the parent energy to this question in a good way i didn't even consider that I was like, as who cares about the kids? A single person, and then as someone, even like dating someone or without a kid yet, yeah, hell yeah, this sounds great. Yeah, sounds awesome. It's a, it's no question. Does the yeah. does the prior uh, does the prior caretaker murder factor into that at all? If I haven't seen The Shining, probably not. I probably would have like. If you haven't seen too. The Shining, you're just like, oh, that's yeah, kind of that's like, oh, that's, that's that's not great. Sounds like that guy was weak mentally, unlike me. <laughs> um, you know, like, that would be a problem for you, me. <laughs> 
you would just adopt a lot. You you would just kind of fold it into like, well, glad I don't got that issue. Yeah, we'll be good. Exactly. I'll be fine. We'll be good, Ricky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good times. The kid thing is crazy. I didn't think about that at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I think it's like the most clear side that he's already evil when he arrives. <laughs> like, it's just like, yeah. he's, you're a monster. Also, like anyone who says I need to go away to work on my writing. Is oh, like, yeah. Okay. You're, you're not a, you know, I, I just don't respect you. <laughs> you've you're, you've murdered a family before. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> you just, yeah. Nope. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. I'm, Soon I, I don't to trust be axe murderer. Um, yeah. Okay. I got a question for you, Jed. Actually, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm excited for this question. I don't I'm know. You that. you had a real low energy. I, this this one's good. Sure. Um, you ever seen a ghost? Uh, no. Ever had a sense of haunting in a space? Even as like a nah. kid, that you can remember nothing. No, I think what I would say is, um, what I would say is that I've been in places so. I think it's a lot like when you were talking about visiting um, the the Red Square, right? The the, sure. the, Mos- the place in Moscow, where like I've definitely had times where I felt the weight of the history of the spot I was in, but I would classify that as as while being profoundly real and something that I certainly felt. And I'm kind of thinking about. Um, I'm sort of thinking about like places, especially like in the American kind of Midwest mm. that there, that I, I've sort of been overcome with the sensation about like how much history, both known and unknown is there, how much horror is there, genocide, life, cities, you know, all these different things. I, I very, I'm very responsive to history in general and I geek out about it. And sometimes I think that feeling I would like to think approaches the same emotional intensity as what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. But in terms of like seeing something that I would ascribe to truly supernatural, like sensation, I would say essentially zero. Never. Interesting. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Any, any fear? Any of those sensations of fear? Oh my God. Like tons of fear. I'm I'm an anxious, like scaredy cat. Ever since I was a kid, I've been looking for monsters under the bed. And even though it is, it is funny though, that even within that question that like, as I've gotten older, like part of becoming an adult is just that like, I hear the sound in the dark hallway and I still get the, the lizard brain, like, Oh my God, it's a ghost. But you know, you, you get better at just like, you know, it's probably not. And yeah, I'm going to assume that's not. And if I die tonight, then cool. <laughs> and if not, we'll see. And I've always waken up the next day and been like, nope, didn't die. Guess it wasn't a ghost. Yeah, so, think. yeah, you know what? Maybe I'll just play the odds. But yeah, I will maybe, always. Maybe you're like, already dead, John. Not to be too much of a supernatural hater. You know, because I used to be really into crypt zoology, like when I was a little kid. So sure. that's like, like uh, you know, Loch Ness Monster, like yeah, Bigfoot, yeah, yeah. like all of these. Uh, but I will never forget as a teenager, actually, maybe that was already like in my twenties, but I saw online, it was a web comic called XKCD and the comic yep. was titled irrefutable proof against the existence of all supernatural monsters. And I was like, this can't, you know, and obviously I'm like, this is going to be just some stupid line and sinker. They got you. And what it says is, uh, it has an X axis that is like, um, time, right? And one line shows number of reported monster sightings and, and photographic evidence. And the line stays about the same. Like it's like, you know, a few a year or whatever. And then the other line says amount of people walking around at all times 
with a perfect video and audio recording device and it skyrockets to nearly 100% around the 2000s, even though obviously sightings don't increase. And at that yeah. point, you just think, okay, that's kind of it, right? From a logical perspective, everything's gone. Not, you know, We live in a boring world. Again, I think it's exciting, but not because of supernatural things like that. Uh, I'm just out on that. So sure. yeah, that's my take. What about you, Mike? Seen a ghost? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> man, great so, it's like, yeah, 100% all the time. I, well, no, I mean, yeah, all the time, all every day. <laughs> It's called mental illness, John. No, um, <laughs> so I, uh, as I've stated, I think, I mean, multiple times on this podcast before, I, I'm sober, been sober for many a year now, mm-hmm. um, especially from drugs. But there was a time in which I was not sober, and uh, it was in college, and I was, uh, I went, we, we were hosting a pre screening of Paranormal Activity 3. And, you know, packed house because it was it wasn't in theaters yet. We got a screening of it on the campus, kind of film board nice. first, and obviously me and a friend went in and got hella high in a stairwell. Sure. When it saw this, <laughs> when it saw this movie, and that movie is a slow burn for about an hour, and then things get real. Uh, about about <laughs> an hour a, in. Is this a sneaky positive review of Paranormal Activity Three? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, of, actually, but. it is. Uh, it it really does do like the thing where you're like, oh my god, this is so boring. Like for especially someone who's like high, you're like, this is so boring. And then it <laughs> and like, then it goes happening. and then it goes off. And then it is the scariest like thirty minute run I had seen in any movie. Um, long story short, I get home in about three <laughs> oh, no. o'clock in the morning. That oh, morning, no. my printer restarted for no apparent reason. <laughs> And John, I've never been more afraid in my entire life. Let me tell you, I woke up to this printer being like, dur, 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 dur. and I died. I just died. I died right then and there. Poor little and, 20, 20 year old Mike is just there. Yeah. Like, this is it. I believed in ghosts ever since. I knew, I knew there was a life after this one ever since. That's tough. That's crazy. Uh, no, I, I do appreciate that you've now given me the ammunition one day in the future, maybe years from now, printer. maybe decades from now. But I will find a way into your printer and uh, just, you know, just terrify you. <laughs> the ghost is back. Oh, Ricky, no, they found I me again. I, I am of the deep, deep, deep opinion, uh, much like you, beyond just like cell phones, that there would just be proof of this sort of thing if it was real. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, really, the cell like, phones yeah. thing is just the icing on the cake. It's, yeah, it's yeah. more like several thousand years without any real evidence. It's like, okay, well, what are we doing? Yeah. But that yeah. being said. I've always been doing this podcast, John. So there you go. Yeah. You can't, can't argue. Well, I'm not find note, a ghost. Uh, thank you, you all for one. maybe this is this listener's personal purgatory that they have to listen to us. <laughs> Whoever you are, are you sure you haven't been listening to us forever? <laughs> Man, if anyone's high listening to this, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. to oh, send they you fell off, asleep hours ago, John. It's, it's tough. It's tough. Uh, any closing thoughts, Mike? Here's Johnny. I'm so mad you didn't do Danny. We didn't do it at any point in this whole episode, but oh, I thought you were going to be Danny. Oh, Danny. Danny. Johnny. 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 I might just end it there. <laughs> I might just fade it out with us saying that. Goodbye. Uh, thank you all for listening. <laughs>